0: felt like that was an appropriate response to what God's doing. If you would take your Bibles, we're continuing our study in Matthew. we will be in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23, which if you're using uh, the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, you can find on page 818. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 13, 1 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive for this people's hearts have has grown cold. sorry, for this people's heart has grown dull and their ears they can barely hear. Father, you have things to say to us today. We know that your spirit is working in our midst as we've been consistently praying. And we ask even that you would use your word this morning to a similar end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've covered a lot of ground as we've been going through the book of Matthew. And so I just want to pause. I want to make sure we don't lose the forest for the trees as we've been moving through this book. Now, if you remember, our theme for the book of Matthew is, is foundations for a church on mission. And so I want you to just imagine for a second that uh, the government of Canada has uh, allowed those who would like to, to claim 40, acre, 40 acres of good soil here in Ontario but you, you just have to commit yourself to cultivating it and turning it into a good crop on the land. And So uh, you think, okay, that's a good deal, so I'm going to take that up, and I'm, I'm going to claim the land. I'm going to go and take it, and, uh, and you begin working the land. You work it really hard. You're going after it, and, and you find that the work is really tough. The weeds have just infiltrated the soil. The root systems are, are very developed. And so after a lot of work, you have about maybe just five square meters cleared. So you're kind of looking, and, and it's, good, it's good soil underneath there. You're doing some good work, and you're excited about what's there. But you look out. You're standing in the middle of your field, and you look out as far as you can see all around, and it's thick, overgrown, unhealthy vegetation and you're just kind of discouraged, overwhelmed by the task, and you say, why is this work so hard? And you ask, what is it, what is it that I can do to actually make some headway here? That's a lot like what the church that Matthew was writing to was feeling, okay? So, they've been excited they've joined up on this this new message that christ has brought that our hearts can be forgiven we can be changed and cleansed they've experienced that jesus brought heart change and they're excited and they're they're committed to making the good news of this kingdom known and they get after it and then just a couple decades later they're looking out and they see the the continuing hostility from all the religious leaders They see that the growth hasn't happened as rapidly as they thought it might. They see all the forces in the culture around them resisting the progress of the gospel. And they're overwhelmed. Like you standing in the middle of that field. Why, Why is this work so difficult? The good news of Jesus should just be readily embraced by everybody. And how am I supposed to go about making this kingdom grow? Advancing God's good cause? Well, make no doubt, Matthew is calling us to continue the work. That's how the gospel ends with that great call. Go and make disciples of all nations. The world is the field and we are to go out. But all along the way, he's laying out these foundational truths centered around Christ that will equip us to be able to do the work that seems so overwhelming for us. And as, as we've, we've moved forward, we've, we've seen that Matthew's pattern is to kind of combine a, a major teaching of Jesus with then some stories about Jesus. So there are the first four chapters which kind of introduce Jesus as the promised king of the Old Testament. One who is a king for all peoples and who's particularly coming to deal with the issue of our sin. But then, then the real kind of sequence of these six pairs of teachings and, and stories begin. So the first one begins in the middle of chapter 4 and goes through chapter 9. And it says Jesus is the one with all the authority. So we see him teaching with authority and then we see his authority in the stories and in his teaching with authority the king lays out his kingdom ethics this is how my people are to to live to behave this is who we are and he shows that it's his his kingdom is not about man pleasing it's about god pleasing it's not a religion that we kind of form this outward morality and hope that it starts to infiltrate and affect our heart But it's actually heart-changed morality that begins deep down in our changed hearts and then flows out of that. And so that's why at the beginning he lays out that call. This is is who my believers are going to be. They're going to be people who are poor in spirit. Who mourn over sin and the brokenness of this world. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then... Of course, the stories in that section that show his authority, his authority over nature, his authority over sickness, his authority over demons, and then most powerfully or most poignantly, his authority to forgive sins. The next section runs from chapter 10 to 12. That's the section we just finished. And that section, Jesus begins, he's sending out his disciples, so he teaches them about what they need to know going out into this world. And, and it focused on the hostility they're going to face. You're going to go out, and people aren't going to like you. People are going to reject you. There's going to be all sorts of hard things. And he, so he, he equips them in that, in that teaching to face the hostility of the world. And then what follows, of course, is, is a series of stories where Jesus... And, and the religious leaders, and even the prevailing that generation, that the people of that day are resisting what Jesus is doing. And as we saw, the crux of that, that the real core issue, the root issue, was that their self-made righteousness was at war with Jesus' mission of mercy. So that's what we've gone through up to this point and then we come to the next major section and it begins with jesus teaching again just like the other two sections began with a major teaching of jesus this time it's with parables now parables are uh something that if you've grown up in a religious setting you've heard about jesus parables but there's a lot of kind of uh i think misinformation or misunderstandings about parables out there i don't know if you guys uh all of you are familiar with, with the uh, television show Mythbusters. It's an interesting show where they take on different uh, urban legends or, or ideas that maybe have been perpetuated in popular culture and movies and they take them on to see, is this true or not? And a lot of times, in surprising ways, they find something that you might not know was true actually proves to be true. But a lot of times they bust myths too, hence the name. So for instance, you've heard if you drop a penny from the top of a skyscraper and it lands on you, it could kill you. They busted that one. Maybe you've heard that a daddy long leg is the most venomous spider. It just can't bite through your skin. So that's why you're all right with it. They busted that one as well. And for us parents, most dear to our hearts, you know how they have the fi- we have the five second rule? they show that that food on the floor for five seconds is no no less contaminated than if it's been there for five minutes. They busted that one too. So now if it's been there for five minutes, I still pick it up and give it to the kids. No, Karen Karen doesn't let me do that. We're going to do some myth-busting today, all right? We're going to bust two myths about parables. Maybe they're ones you've heard. Maybe uh, these will be ones that you haven't heard, but they'll nonetheless bring clarity to what a parable is. Myth number one. Parables are everyday stories that Jesus used to communicate complex theology in a way everyone could understand. Right, so the fact that Jesus told parables people used to kind of make Jesus the populist preacher. He spoke in a way that a farmer could understand. He spoke in the way that, you know, just the common folk, they were drawn in. He's held up as kind of the model communicator, using stories so effectively to communicate truth. But I want to stop for a second and imagine that this story that you heard at the beginning, in verses 13, or chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. You heard with no explanation. You'd never heard the story before. And you, you have very little context. You have no explanation. You just hear this story. A farmer went out, threw some seeds. And as he was sowing the seeds, it fell on four different types of soil. Some fell along the path that he would walk on. It was packed down path. And so the soil could, or the seed couldn't get down in the soil. And the birds could just come up and take it. Other soil... Or other seeds fell on the rocky soil, which in those days there's a kind of a layer of limestone under the ground. And so just kind of a thin layer of dirt It would go into that dirt, take up root quickly because that dirt up on the top of the rock was uh, nice for growth. But it couldn't get down to where it needed for the moisture and the, be able to survive the devastating heat of the sun. So when that sun comes out, it withers. Other seed falls among the thorny soil. So there's all these weeds in it. And so these weeds grow up. These thorns grow up. This thistle and it chokes it out so the plant really can't grow. And then other seed falls in good soil. Now they would have expected if it was good soil, it would probably have had a really good return. Return about tenfold. But Jesus says in this story, it falls in the seed, or it falls in the good soil, and it produces a hundredfold or sixty or thirty. So that's your story. That's it. That's what you got. He doesn't explain it. He just leaves it right there. Now you might be going, huh, so this is something about farming techniques. I think I need to consult Bob Meisner about soil and whether, you know, you're you're trying to figure out what, well, so there's a surprising great harvest at the end. I wonder if there's something going on with that. But you don't know what's going on. It's this weird thing that's out there. And if if you don't know that it's Jesus giving it, if you don't have this kind of appetite for, here is God's king, the promised one, the wise one, who's coming telling the story to us, you might just dismiss it as kind of a, it's not a very convincing story. It doesn't have a great plot to it. In fact, when his disciples go to him, they don't say, Wow, you really move the people with that great story. They themselves need an explanation of it. And what do they say there in verse 10? Why are you doing this? Why are you speaking to them in parables? Because it doesn't intuitively make sense to the people that have heard the parable. What he's saying. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in answer to their question. So look at verses 11 to 13. Jesus answered them To you, his disciples who'd gather around him seeking more information, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have in abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I, uh, I sometimes get frustrated in my home. Because one of my children will be standing about as close as that music stand to me. And I will say something like. Go upstairs and get in your pajamas and brush your teeth. And I'll go and do something. And I'll come back and they'll be standing right there. And I'll say. Did you hear me? I asked you. They'll say no I don't know. I I didn't hear anything. I'm like you were right there. What's going on here? So imagine that I'm a a great inventor, all right? And I come up with this contraption to address this problem. I know I'm the only one who has the problem, but I've I've got it, all right? So it's kind of like a hearing aid. I can place it on my child's ear. And what it does is it trains them to listen to my voice because when they start to pay attention and listen to my words, their sense of hearing grows keener. And keener, they're able to pick up exactly what I'm saying. But it's kind of a judgment on them if they start to tune out. If they don't pay attention, that it actually dulls their hearing. So that they begin to hear less and less. I'm just a cruel dad, aren't I? Thinking of things like that. No, I think actually what I'm trying to get at with that is that invention is just like the way Jesus has parables function. That those who know the one speaking this is somebody I need to follow and hear are going to come to him and they, they're drawn in by those stories and they want to know more. But for those who are already hardening their hearts against God and his king, it actually causes their hearing to become more and more dull because they can dismiss it without hearing any real truth. That's what Jesus is saying His parables do. They They certainly reveal certain things, but they also conceal to those who are hardening their hearts. This was the same thing that was going on in the prophet Isaiah's day, several hundred years before Jesus. The people had become, uh, they still thought of themselves as religious, thought of themselves as following God, But they just were not living at all in light of what God had said. And God had sent messenger after messenger after them, calling them out. And they had hardened their hearts. They would become the stench in God's nostrils. So God raises up the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And he, he says, who shall go for me? Who will go and be my messenger? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then he tells them what his message is to be. In Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Which is quoted right here in our passage. It says, he says to Isaiah, You will indeed, they're supposed to proclaim this message, that they will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their ears they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, God is holding out this message, but because their hearts are hardened, when Isaiah comes along and proclaims it, a clear call to repent and turn to Him, it will actually further cement the position they've taken to reject God and to go their own way. It hardens their hearts, not softens their hearts. And now as the great teacher, not just the prophet Isaiah, but as the king... Jesus comes and he speaks in a way that is particularly effective at doing this. He speaks in the parable. And so it says, or so he says, it it does conceal or harden or cement for these people who are not wanting to know what I have to say. But for you who are hungry to know and to learn, he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, the things that I'm revealing you right now, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So there is this great wealth. In fact, at the end, the very end of all the parables, down at, uh, go all the way over to verses 51 and 52, he says to these disciples, Have you understood all these things? And they say to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So yes, these parables are meant to conceal, but they're also meant to reveal things to these disciples who will then go out and make this message known and reveal these secrets to all. So, a parable isn't just the story that everybody can access and understand and makes theological truths accessible to everybody. It's this winnowing tool, like my invention on the ear, that if you are tuned in to what Jesus is saying and you want to learn and you're hungry, it will increase your appetite, it will increase your knowledge, and you will come to understand profound truths about the kingdom through these stories. Stories that then we're instructed to share with others. And yet, for those who are not interested in what Jesus has to say, it will harden the heart. It will show that we have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. The real question of the text is, can we hear? You see in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. And then, in verse 13, why am I speaking in parables? Because hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So they don't hear, they don't understand. Which then, in the quotation from Isaiah, it says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And then in verse 15, again, in the quote from Isaiah, he says, lest they should hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And then in verse 19, he's talking about the the bad soil, the soil of the the path. And he says, um, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand. And then he talks about the good soil down in verse 23. How does he describe it? Who hears the word and understands it. And then all the way in verse 51, what is the question he asks at the end of all the parables? Do you, have you understood all these things? So you will either listen attentively and look to Jesus and dig deeper and you will hear and you will understand and you will turn or you'll close your ears and you'll move yourself away and your heart will be more hardened. That's what parables are do. That's what parables do. They both reveal and conceal. So myth number 1 busted. Which brings us to myth number 2. And that is this, parables are simply allegories. Parables are allegories. Now, what is an allegory? An allegory is a story where every element in it has been carefully designed to correspond to something in reality. So the most famous of this is probably uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story that describes the Christian journey, but in narrative form. It's an allegory. There are other allegories, some that we didn't know were allegories, like did you know that the, the book, The Wizard of Oz, is an allegory? In the late 1800s, the United States was dealing with whether we should move away from the gold standard for money or not. It was a big debate. Some people said, no, don't move away from the gold standard. Some people said, move away from it entirely. Most of the people were advocating for some kind of middle ground where a combination of silver and gold were to be uh, used as some sort of measuring line for the currency. So there you have Dorothy, who's lost her way. And what does she need to follow? The yellow brick road, the gold road. And in the book, it's not ruby slippers, because they're silver slippers. They make them red because, you know, you're going to do everything in technicolor. Silver is not all that exciting. But in the book, they're silver slippers. So I need the silver and the gold together to guide me to home. And where is that silver? That, that golden road leading me to, the Emerald City, you know, the, the Greenback City. Who do I meet along the way? Well, just a common farmer, uh, an industrial worker who's just kind of his, the, the, those mean capitalists have kind of robbed his heart, and the cowardly lion who has some really uncanny similarities to the prevailing politician of the day advocating for moving away from the gold standing, William Jennings Bryant, Cowardly Lion. And these three will skip me along the road as I take on those big tycoons, the the Wicked Witch of the East and the Wicked Witch of the West. It's an allegory. Well, parables are not allegories like that. And this is important to understand where, because um, some, sometimes we will use a parable like an allegory and, and it becomes this sort of uh, putty in a preacher's hand. So Jesus doesn't usually give an explanation. Here he does give an explanation. Every once in a while he gives an explanation. But usually when he gives a parable, he doesn't explain it. It's just set out there. And so when preachers come to preach it, if you treat it like an allegory, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Let's just look at the parable that's there in verse 33. He told them this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So, let me tell you what this parable is about. You see, the woman is the prevailing evil society, the government. And the leaven is Jesus. The flower represents the church, but in three, you know, it says three. So it represents the church in three distinct ages, the ages from the time of Constantine up until the Reformation, these three major periods of the church. And you see, because of the corruption of the church and the way it was tied in with the governmental powers of that day, that leaven was hidden. In the flower. Jesus wasn't on display in the church during those days. But then, eventually, because Jesus can't be kept down, He eventually broke free and leavened the whole dough. And that's what happened at the Reformation. Praise the Lord that Jesus can't be kept down. You see how I can just make it mean whatever I want it to mean. If I view it as an allegory. But that's not what a parable is. Jesus uses parables like a laser to address a particular issue or question that has been raised within the context of his ministry. I'm not going to have you turn there, but uh, actually I am going to have you turn there. Let's go real quick to Luke chapter 15 on page 874. Luke chapter 15. In Luke, there's this recording of parables, Jesus teaching on parables as well. And there's some famous parables... Um, the parable of the lost sheep is there, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Now again, you can make each of these parables say all sorts of things that you want it to mean if you kind of treat it allegorically where anything can correspond to anything, no explanations given for any of them. Look how, this is Luke 15, 8 look how um, the first parable ends in verse 7. I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. The second parable ends, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then look how the parable of the prodigal son ends in verse 31 and 32. And he said, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Remember, parables are this laser addressing a specific question or issue that's been raised by the context of Jesus' ministry. So look at how, be, how this, these parables begin. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he tells them three stories, In each something valuable was lost, and then it was found and reclaimed, and it's not grumbling, but it's joy. Although in the last story, there is somebody grumbling, who bears an uncanny resemblance to these very Pharisees and scribes. Do you see how the parable works? It's not, hey, I can just come up with whatever I want it to mean. Anything that's valuable, that's lost. No, he's dealing with something very particular that Luke 15 has raised. So it is with our passage. He's bringing his laser-like focus. And and shedding light on a situation. Remember, the situation that gave rise to this chapters 10 through 12. There's a reason I started with an overview. It's not just so we don't miss the forest for the trees, but sometimes you can't understand where you're at unless you've understood where you've come from in a book. Chapters 10 through 12 are all about this hostility that they're going to face, right? As as the disciples go out into the world, they're going to face hostility, he's told them. And he himself uh, has started to experience great resistance to what he's doing. The Pharisees are standing up. They're even plotting how to destroy him. What's going on here? And so Jesus tells a story where the exact same seed is tossed out to many. But there are varying responses... Based on the different kinds of soil. And then he draws his disciples in and he explains what's going on. Why did I tell this story in light of this situation? These Pharisees, these scribes and religious leaders, and their self made righteousness and morality. What's really going on and why they're resisting the word is that their hearts are so closed and hardened that the evil one is at work in their midst, plucking it away. That's the same thing he had said in chapter 12, verses 43 and 45. Remember, it all started with he healed this demon-possessed man at the beginning of chapter 12, and there's these discussions, and he says, look, you guys are actually the demon-possessed ones. You've made your homes inviting for the demons. And here he is again saying, look, it's because their hard hearts, their their self-made righteousness and morality has made their hearts hard to the things of God. And so the evil one is plucking away the message before it even takes root. You want to know why, Jesus says, the going is hard and going is difficult? Because even amongst those who initially are going to embrace my message and as you guys go out to make disciples your message, even amongst them, there'll be some who don't respond appropriately. They'll embrace the Word of God initially, receive it with joy. But because the Word of God doesn't actually start to take root in their lives and grow deep within them, when standing with the Word of God causes hardship in their life, they're going to wilt. They'll side with whatever they need to side with to get out of the hard situations. And others, others will receive this Word and it'll start to grow in them, but because they're not willing to, to do the hard work of weeding out the competing desires, the desires of this world that are also at work in our heart, it's just going to choke that out. And it too will not produce true fruit. He says, but there are some, there are some where that seed will take root and where it will actually grow and shape them, transform them. And for those, the fruit will be way, way bigger than anything you could imagine. That's how my kingdom grows. Now, it's interesting. I think a lot of times if you think of these four different soils, we today would think of the the latter three as people who are Christians, who are who are true citizens of the kingdom. Because we tend to think of in terms of your initial response to the gospel is what marks whether you're a Christian or not. So, did you at any point say Oh, I'm stirred by the word of the kingdom and I'm gripped by it and I'm allowing it to take root in my heart. Anybody who does that, who cares what happens when the persecutions come and there's no root and it wilts and dies? Who cares what happens if you're not allowing the competing desires to, you're allowing those competing desires to just grow and flourish in your heart and so it's choking it out and it's dying? If, if you've had some initial response with, with Jesus, you're all part of the family here. It's how we tend to think. It's how I was growing up thinking at least. But Jesus doesn't link the last three together. He links the first three together. Because his focus isn't so much on that initial reception of the word, but is it growing and bearing fruit in your life? At the end of the day, the first three are all alike. There's no plant and there's no fruit, even though two of them initially received. The one that stands apart is the last that produces this mighty fruit. We, we, uh, when you, it's, it's interesting when you dig into God's Word, not just in this passage here, but over and over again, when Paul or Peter or Jesus, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are giving instructions about how we find assurance that we truly belong to God. Over and over again, it's saying, do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Do you see fruit of the Spirit? Are you growing? Are you growing? Are you walking with Him? It doesn't point back and say, Did you at one point receive? Now, sometimes it'll go back to that one point and say, Hey, remember what you did here and live in light of that. But in terms of for assurance that we truly belong to God, it always is pointing to. Evidence of the fruit within us. Now, I just want to stop now and just make one clarification. When we talk about this, I'm not saying that you need to kind of... Well, Jesus isn't saying that you need to kind of figure out a way to become more and more moral and do good, better and better things, live more and more moral life, and if you do, then you can have confidence you belong to God. That's exactly what the Pharisees were thinking, right? That's what they did. I'm going to construct this moral system, a religious to-do list, that if I just check, check, check... I can do these things and have confidence that I'm in right relationship with God. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the word of God going deep into our hearts. The word of the gospel, the word of the kingdom go deep into our hearts and start to shape us and transform us so that it, working in us by his spirit, starts to transform us. So it's not something I do, do, do. It's I embrace this message about Jesus and it shapes me and transforms me in such a way that there is a fruit that I can see is growing within me. Does that make sense? And that's an important distinction to keep in mind because we don't want to use this parable to drive us the very thing that Jesus is speaking against with the Pharisees. So Jesus is rejecting or er, explaining why the Pharisees rejected. He's also explaining how his kingdom grows, and and when he does. He says, look, it's not about how many different soils receive me. The kingdom isn't going to grow because everybody who hears the message is going to just gobble it up. Everyone on whom the word of the kingdom comes embraces it. It's not so much about quantity for Jesus, right? It's about quality. Somebody, one soil Even a fraction of those who initially respond. One soil that embraces this kingdom. Or embraces this message of the kingdom. And really lets it get into them. And it transforms them. Now, this is an important principle. And I want to apply it in a very specific way. A lot of times, when we hear a report on a ministry... Or a missionary, they focus on the number of conversions. We had 500 people baptized through our ministry. 223 young people made a decision on a card, or whatever it is. A lot of times, when we focus on those kind of big numbers, we actually Go against the very thing that Jesus is saying about how he, how his kingdom grows. Because at the end of the, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he doesn't say go and make converts of all nations. He says go and make disciples of all nations. And when we're when we're focused on just getting a bunch of people to walk an aisle or click a click a box or, or um, to, to even get baptized. Without that really going after the heart and saying, is God's word taking root in you and growing in you? We can end up with a bunch of people in that second and third soil type and rejoicing over that and neglect the third to- soil type and trying to cultivate that. In fact, sometimes when I hear those kind of reports, I actually get a little sad. I remember a story of um, Southern Baptists denominational leader had gone down he told the story to us he had gone down to uh, I think it was Haiti I'm not somewhere in that area of the world and he had done this big evangelistic outreach and thousands of people came to Christ and he went back up reporting what great fruit he had seen he was so excited and then Southern Baptists like to have systems where you measure results and things like this. So he said, I think it'd be a good idea now a few years later to go down and just follow up with the thousands of people who committed uh, their lives to Christ. And he said, almost none of them were living for any sort of religious conviction, Christian religious conviction. He said, the only ones I found that were, were now Mormons because the Mormons were discipling them. And he said it changed his whole way of thinking. I'd say it's exactly what Jesus is getting after here, isn't it? Think about the person who, who is like the, you know, the, the, one of those middle two soils and the kind of witness they have throughout their life. Maybe they continue to claim Christ. At least that's how they did in the southern United States. Okay, I'm a Christian, sure, and I keep living like this and doing like this and it makes no impact on my life. And now their family's watching and they're saying, this person claims to be a Christian. And yet this? I don't want anything to do with that. Or maybe they say, okay, I tried that, done it, I don't need it. So you come and try and reach them with the gospel. Oh, I've already been there, done that, it didn't do anything for me. It's actually hard going as a result. But think about somebody who really is transformed by the gospel. I'm not saying they become the perfect person. You know, a little Pollyanna who never does anything wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm somebody, talking about somebody who exhibits those beatitudes, right? Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Someone who's being shaped by the word of the kingdom. Somebody like this, and they start to, it affects all their relationships. So their family members see somebody who genuinely loves them and cares about them. It's being shaped into a meek and gentle man, a man of mercy or a woman of mercy. And their co-workers notice, there's something about this guy. He's willing to pour into me. She's willing to really take an interest in my life and the hard things I'm going through. And she loves me with a love that goes beyond what I've ever experienced from a human. There's something different. Or our neighbors. Or the people within our church. We take some and we pour into them from the same treasures that have been poured out to us. And we pour into them. And those lives are impacted and they become people are transformed and they have an impact on others and the crop is 100-fold for some, 60-fold for some, 30-fold for some. That's how God's kingdom grows. So I want us as a church, when we think about reaching lost people, we don't think about, hey, how many converts do we get? I want us thinking, Are we helping the word really grow and flourish in these people so that they, like us, can be really transformed by this gospel? So, myth number two, going back to it, is busted. It's not an allegory. Jesus is telling this parable. It's a simple truth about the kingdom that addresses the Pharisees' rejection of him, and it addresses the general opposition that will meet. I want to close, though, by moving beyond myth-busting. Because I think it's not too cheesy that God wants to do some heart-busting. The question in the parable is what do you do with the word of the kingdom? How do you receive it? And the teaching in between Verses 10 through 17 is is bringing that into bear, right? How do I hear? How do I listen to this word? I, as a pastor of this church over the last couple of weeks, have been gripped with how clearly God is speaking to us and to me. What do we do with that? We come to church and just tune it out. I'm supposed to be here, but put it on my face, start thinking about everything else. Hard-hearted. I think the evil one, just pluck it away. Or do we hear it, receive it with joy? Great message. That was such a moving experience. But never really let it penetrate. Never dwell on it. Never let it really shape us. Or do we say, yeah, that's good. I agree with that. And yet, at the same time, allow all these other things in our hearts to continue to grow that are unhealthy, that are wrong desires, that ultimately just choke out the good work that God's trying to do. Or are we going to be a people actually meditate on what God is saying and dwell on it and grapple with it and dig deeper and so become the types of people whose lives are transformed by this gospel and produce a bountiful crop. I'm praying for my own heart and I'm praying for our hearts that for all of us It would be the latter. Let's pray. Father. I know that even this teaching and this parable. For some in this room can be hardening hearts. As they refuse. To really dig deep and grapple. So that having eyes they won't see and ears they won't hear, lest they understand in turn. I know that'll be the case, but I pray, Lord, by a mighty work of your Spirit, that you would, for many here who are drifting in that direction, correct it today. Even if we're drifting in just slight ways in that direction, correct it today. May we be people who